Hello, and welcome to Fortune's Wheelhouse, a podcast about esoterics and the tarot. I'm Susie Chang, and my co-host is Mel Moline. We're going on a journey through the symbolic imagery of each of the 78 tarot cards. If you use a Rider-Waite-Smith deck, or a Thoth deck, or Mel's own Tabula Mundi deck, you've come to the right place. We love making this podcast, and we hope you love listening to it. But you should also know that Fortune's Wheelhouse is more than the sound of our voices. We have a home on the web at www.patreon.com slash fortuneswheelhouse. Come and visit us there so you can experience the other part of this conversation, where we provide hundreds of written articles and explanations for even the most obscure concepts you'll hear on the show. If you sign up to be our patron at even the $1 level, you'll instantly gain access to all that information. As you know, each week we have a giveaway. Last week's miniature Virgo prize of a pocket deck and matching case goes to Sinead in Great Britain. Congratulations, Sinead. This week, we're talking about the Nine of Pentacles or Discs, that lovely lady I like to call the Little Empress. She's associated with Venus in Virgo, and in honor of the perfumed goddess, I am offering one lucky winner my perfume for Virgos. It's called The Hidden Jewel, and it contains a quiet blend of Narcissus sandalwood and vetiver with notes of bergamot and rosewood for that afternoon tea in the library feel. You can sign up as a patron and find out more about the drawing at www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. If you're on Facebook, you can also connect with other listeners at Fortune's Wheelhouse Academy. That's the officially unofficial Fortune's Wheelhouse group where even now hundreds of listeners like you are sharing their love of esoteric tarot. You too could be one of them. Remember, you can always check in with me and Mel at our individual websites. I'm at www.tsusanchang.com. That's T as in tarot, susanchang.com, which is where you can check out my blog posts, my online class, my book, and lots more. My Etsy shop is at www.etsy.com slash shop slash tarotista. Mel's blog is at www.tabulamundi.com, and you can order her products at tarocart.com. And we each have newsletters where you can sign up to hear about anything new that's happening in our worlds. Finally, if you have a moment and you haven't done it yet, would you please leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes? You can do it that way too. It's free, it's easy to do, and it really does help spread the word. Thanks for doing that and helping us out. And now, here's this week's episode. When Grandma was a girly, it was a custom. Each night before she put up her hair and curls, to kneel and tell her troubles to the angels. And that was the way with all the good little girls. But nowadays, the maids are mercenaries. For earthly blessings is all they seem to care. They go down on their knees and ask the angels, please, to hearken to this modern maiden's prayer. Give me a lot of bows and lots of pretty clothes. Give me a Pekingese and feet for all the shows. Give me a millionaire to fall in love with me. Take me to Rector's, pay the collector's, one of those purely platonic protectors. 
Hi, everybody. We are back with the Nine of Pentacles or Discs, otherwise known as the Lord of Gain or Material Gain. I guess it's not Weight Gain or Solar Gain. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the time when we think of Gain, we're thinking of cha-ching. Cha-ching. So this is the card of that. This is the suit where that phrase material does tend to crop up. The five is material trouble, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, is the six material success? It might be. I don't remember. That sounds right. Yeah. So every once in a while, the Golden Dawn feels it has to remind us that we're talking about matter. We're talking about stuff. So in the overall story of the discs cards, the return to the divine or the journey of the maiden, we are now in Virgo as we began last episode. And Virgo is, of course, the maiden herself. Uh, in Capricorn, we dealt with the material world. In Taurus, the bridge of the material and divine. And here in Virgo, we're talking about the things that we leave behind, um, the finished products, the passing on, the legacies. In the eight, we talked about refinement, um, about the details that go into making something just right. Here, we talk about Questions of value. What is the value of the thing that we've made? What benefit can be gleaned from it? And it is associated with the planet Venus. So, you know, Virgo is already a pretty feminine sign, but this is probably the most feminine decan of the right. sign. Yeah, decan ruled by Venus. I think that this is where, like, the perfectionistic tendencies of Virgo go nuts. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually have any planets here, which is probably why I'm such a slob. <laughs> I actually think of this as kind of the Martha Stewart card. Uh, yeah, I could You know what that. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Everything's got to be just right. Venus is interesting in this sign. Venus likes her, her beautiful comforts and things. And... Venus is in fall in Virgo, which is not too bad in the same way that Jupiter's in fall in Capricorn. You know, you can kind of, the benefics in fall are not that bad. And in fact, right. the only planets in fall that are represented in the minor arcana are this one and the two of disc, the Lord of Change. You know, what's really interesting is a couple of years ago, I think maybe it was two years ago, we had an autumn where it was probably around this time of year mm -hmm. uh, represented where the apple harvest, do you remember? It was yeah. crazy. Yeah. Like there was yeah. trees that get apples were getting like bumper crops of apples. Trees that never got apples, like wild trees on the side of the road were drooping with apples. Like it was like. Was that two years ago? Because it was less. It was two, two years, two or three years ago. Yeah. There was, there were more apples than I've ever seen. And I remember it was when Venus was in Virgo. Mm. And I remember thinking at first of, well, you know, Venus and Virgo being in fall, but then thinking of this card and, the, you know, like the... Yeah, just the, the abundance. The abundance of it. And mm -hmm. like the, that year there was apples have to do with Venus. Right. And that right. and Virgo has to do with agriculture and the earth. So it was just amazing that year. There were more apples than you could you knew what to do with. Right. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. And this year it's been Venus and Libra and Scorpio kind of going back and forth. And not it's not been the same at all. It's not been a good year for apples. <laughs> right. It seems to have gone by very, very quickly. Plus she was retrograde. It's interesting to think about these cards of fall versus 
exaltation in a way. You know, what's funny. So we have Venus and Jupiter represented by uh, infall in the nine of pentacles or discs and the two of pentacles or discs. All the other planets are represented in their exaltation in the minor arcana, like the uh, Saturn mm-hmm. in Libra and the three of swords, uh, Mars and Capricorn exalted there, three of discs. Uh, Sun in Aries, three of wands. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, Mercury in Virgo is both rulership and exaltation in the 10 of discs. And then the moon. Um, Yeah, the moon in Taurus, six of discs. So, you know, what's funny. There's a lot of fallen exaltation in the discs cards. That's weird. Two, three, six, nine, ten. That's very yeah. symmetrical. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Talking about the tree of life there. Hmm. Anyway, so um, the other Venus cards, we might as well do those. So we've got Venus in the second decan of Virgo. That's gain, nine of discs. Then we have Venus in the final decan of Scorpio. That is debauch. She's in detriment there. Uh, then we have Venus in Aquarius. Five of Swords Defeat, that is the first decan of Aquarius, and then a uh, final decan of Aries, Venus in Aries, uh, again in detriment, but completion. And then and then the last one, that, that was Four of Wands, and then the last one, of course, is our favorite, Venus in the first decan of Cancer, Two of Cups, Love. So gain, love, completion, as well as debauch and defeat. <laughs> When she's good, she's very, very good. And when she's bad, she's horrid. <laughs> Defeat, Five of Swords, is kind of Venus is not being quite up to the job. Yeah. And then in Scorpio is kind of hysterical and out of control. <laughs> but elsewhere, you know, she does her beautiful Venus things. Gain, love, and completion. One of the really interesting things about this card is that it's, it looks so Venusian. I mean, at least the Rider Waite Smith one does. And mm-hmm. really, all of them have that really Venusy feeling about them, mm-hmm. which is, in fact, I like to call this card the Little Empress because I think if you put the Empress and Rider Waite Smith and the mm-hmm. Nine of Pentacles together, she, she looks like she's related. They look like versions of each other. Like I think of the High Priestess and the Two of Swords. I think of the two of swords as like the little priestess. Yeah. And this one's the little empress. We could talk a little bit about Virgo in that this Deccan has the exaltation of Mercury in it. Yeah, 15 degrees. At 15 yeah. degrees. Yeah. So I read somewhere something that was kind of cool in that the reason that the exaltation of Mercury is at 15 degrees is because that's the first degree where he moves far away enough from the beams of the, of the sun to be visible. Ah, that makes sense. Because Mercury's always within 28 degrees of the sun, and when he's too close to the sun, the sun's rays, you know, drown him out. So once he gets to 15 degrees, he's far enough away that he becomes visible in his own light, free from the sun's beams. Yeah. And the other really cool and interesting thing about that exaltation degree of 15 degrees is that it's associated with one of the stars of the constellation Virgo, the the Epsilon star, which hmm. is called Vindemiatrix, the female grape gatherer. Oh, that is great. 
And that's, that's really great. What we see that's here exactly in the Rider Waite card, that woman with all the grapevines behind her. So that star was set, its heliacal rise was said to be at harvest and winemaking time. That's and great. And so they called it the female grape gatherer, or also the vintager is the other meaning of mm-hmm. that, that word. Vindemiatrix. It's a fun word. That's great. And so it was time to pick what was sown. It was time for gathering and also that fixed star is associated with people who collect things like stamp collectors and art collectors and people who collect oh that's so that kind of fits too yeah there there is a gathering quality to virgo before you know gathering and then distributing kind of thing gotta put the sun in the container before you can you know bear it to safety wherever it's going yep and that star was in um the right hand of the maiden so in it where, wherein I think in her left hand she holds the wheat shaft, in her right hand she cradles uh, a palm frond, and that's yeah. where where this star is. Um, and it sounds pretty fortunate, and generally it is. Although with all fixed star stuff, you always get one of the experts who wants to associate it with horrible, horrible things. And uh, <laughs> in this case, it was Robson who associates uh, that star with widows and widowers which is kind of interesting when you look at the wait smith card she could mm-hmm. indeed be a, a widow who's inherited her her wealth well yeah yeah i mean i think that there's definite qualities of widowhood and and aloneness that go with both the nine yeah. and ten of virgo yeah self-containment especially with the ten with the association with the queen of swords mm-hmm. but this one too you know I'm thinking of what you were mentioning in the eight of discs of the sort of self-sufficient maiden who gives herself to whom she will, you know, not necessarily a virgin, but someone who is in control, sufficient unto herself. Exactly. Doesn't need a man, but will take one when she wants one. (laughs) Exactly. And it's actually, maybe we can look a little bit at some of those, since this is the maiden archetyped within the Virgo cards, it's kind of interesting to compare Venus expressed in here with some of the myths like, you know, Venus as mother and daughter in the Persephone myth is there. Um, oh, the Astraea, Astraea, mm-hmm. Astraea myth. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a real separation myth, right? Mm-hmm. Cause she was one of the last gods to stay among humanity. And then she was just like, you guys are shitheads. <laughs> and she left and she's the winged. At least she didn't kill herself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's another way to go. Right. Right. <laughs> but again, that archetype of the winged. The winged maiden mm-hmm. is like the Astraea figure flying up to heaven because she can't take it no more here. Interesting. I just remembered the descriptions of the majors in the back of 777. I think the one for the empress says a winged maiden stands upon the moon. Oh, really? Very much sort of picks up on that passage from Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Well, I also like the idea of Virgo as double-bodied maiden and bird because we see the maiden, maiden and, bird and the bird right here, here. Yep. yeah that uh that idea of uh you get to do you get to fly where you want we won't make the joke again about the bird in the bush <laughs> so so we really are you know all archetypes harvest mother youthful virgin lady of justice that feeling of women who are in control of their own destinies and who play pivotal roles at this time of year If you think about the beginning of the growing season, the sacrificial practices associated with that often had to do with sacrificing the virgin, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas the harvest side of it often has to do with sacrificing the king. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So if you, as a woman, make it to this side of the growing season, you're doing just fine. <laughs> it's not your problem anymore. <laughs> One thing I thought that was um, interesting in terms of the Kabbalah, he sewed the weapons are perfume and sandals. And so when yeah. you think of perfume, you think of Venus. And when you think of sandals, you think of Mercury. And this card is uh, the Mercury for the Hermit and Venus for the Empress. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, and Venus actually isn't quite in fall yet here. I mean, she's technically in fall throughout the sign, but I think it's 27 degrees opposite 27 Pisces, where her exaltation is. So, so she has a little dignity here, the perfume, as you mentioned. And I actually get this card a lot when I'm making perfume or sewing. Mm-hmm. Those two things are that. completely associated. And, you know, that's like me running my own little business, too, which... I also associate with this card. So the the majors, it's really interesting to think about that, you know, as you say, that sort of Mercury-Venus connection. Um, because if you look at the Empress and the Hermit, you know, there's they really do opposite and things in a way. And is Venus Mercury's mother? So trying to sort of get a handle on the parentage of Hermes. And it's interesting because, you know, he's referred to in the Orphic hymns as Maya's son and Zeus's son. But I've also seen him, well, he definitely has a relationship to Aphrodite of some kind. And to Zeus. And to Zeus. His cupbearer or whatever. Yeah, and his, you know. Messenger. Like most problematic offspring, you know. (laughs) You know, the rebellious child. But also Aphrodite, you know, they're often represented as pairs, you know, with him as sort of the male figure and Aphrodite as the female figure, their child. That Herm makes Aphrodite. sense. They're across each other on the tree, Hoden, Metzak, yeah. Venus, and Mercury. Yeah, they're meant, you know, pairs in that way. Feeling versus intellect mm-hmm. as well. In the Hermes Chthonios hymn, they talk about him as kin of Dionysus and Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. So kin could be anything, but yeah. you know, they're all related anyway. It's a yeah. family matter. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty inbred clan. I think. <laughs> That's for sure. I guess the rules are different. There's definitely something about those two. And if you if you look at the empress and the hermit as opposing archetypes. I think it's really interesting because they also have a relationship mythically in the sense that, you know, if you think of empress as Demeter figure, who does she turn to in her most difficult moment? She turns to Hermes to help her get down there and try and get her daughter. So they have this thing where whether you think of her as the mother or the virgin, she still needs Gandalf. (laughs) (laughs) To help her through, um, well, I mean, in the way that everybody needs Mercury to help get through the blockages and uh, and travel to places that are hard to get to. I think they need each other, too. If you think of Mercury as the magus, the magician, mm-hmm. to do magic, you need not only the words, but the feeling behind them. There's the word, the intellect, and then there's the emotion that powers the word. Yeah. And I think particularly because in Virgo, Mercury's in his earthy aspect, that's where you really need Venus to grow things and to make things connect. And the, the impulse for life itself is embodied by the Venus as well as effective concepts. If you really want to get anything to live and grow, you need her. Kabbalistically, we're in Yesod of Asiya. Asiya, we've again talked about as that which is made, the sort of physical act of completion, as opposed to formation of Yetzirah, which is more of a molding thing, and uh, and the creative aspect of Bria, which brings something out of nothingness. 
I also think of Isoda as like the idea of the spirit in matter, the way it's right above Malkut and connected, and it's the astral light and yeah, the lunar the lunar light reflected by the sun. So it's on that middle pillar. It's got the sun above it, and then the moon reflecting that light, and then Malkut down below. And that idea of the spirit yeah. and matter, the direct connection up the pillar all the way up to Keter. Right. And Yasod is just such an interesting place because... Yes, the treasure trove. It's the treasure trove. It's the, you know, foundation is sometimes translated as basis or establishment. It is, it is as we've said before, the blueprint behind reality. And you don't get reality without Yasod, mm-hmm. even if it's invisible and you can't see it. It's like our genetic code, or it's like you know, the, the laws of physics, it's, it has to be in place for everything else to exist. And Hermes the Traveler is what allows us to see that invisible world. It's Yesod and Osea is literally the foundation of the of material matter, yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, virtue of Yesod and the vice, I have independence versus idleness. That's you have what that? I have too. And I think that's really um, striking <laughs> when you look at the Rider weight card. She looks both independent and idle. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, it's funny how like sometimes the vices are the opposite of the virtues and sometimes they're sort of like a bad version of the virtue, yeah. right? They're not always the opposite, but sort of like out of balance version. So if you're independent, then you don't need anybody. And if you're idle, you won't help anybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't need anybody and I don't have to do anything. I'm the boss of me. The archangel is Gabriel. Gabriel is who is the uh, angel of the Annunciation. He's the one who told Mary, you're going to bear the Christ child. So there's that relationship with the Mary figure who is Venusian, both mother and virgin. So there's that connection there. Some people, because of Gabriel's horn, will consider Gabriel the angel of judgment as well. But that's a later kind of myth that was kind of cobbled onto Gabriel's more common mythology as an angel of defense of messages, you know, uh, and an angel of the West. Yeah. The archdemon is the infamous Lilith. <laughs> so that seems especially apt, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Not just because it's a female demon and, you know, sort of in this Venusian Deccan, but also because she's associated negatively with childbirth and, you know, with barrenness and the barren mother. Uh, as opposed to fertility. And also that spirit of independence that she had, you know. Yeah, that sort of fuck you. I'm yeah. going to yeah. submit to you. Right. <laughs> Interestingly, sometimes in translation, when people see that word, I don't, Liliet, Lilit, I can't remember how it's spelled in Hebrew. It's sometimes translated as the screech owl. You know, oh, so and she was an at owl wings, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. So again, that figure of the maiden and the bird combined mm-hmm. seems to be playing out in both negative and positive ways in this particular aspect of Virgo. Maiden and bird, the harpies also. Yeah, there's a there's a scary aspect. That's of for sure. Maiden and bird. Yeah. We're talking about 10 degrees to 19 degrees of Virgo. So September 1st to 10th-ish, something like that, uh, when everybody goes back to school. And they leave you blessedly alone. Oh, God, <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> the 
is like a, a, a beautiful silence that just descends on the house. And ah, oh, it's so good. Yeah, for me, very personally, I definitely relate to this time of year as being a time of sort of solitude and regathering of the self. Well, you know, what's really interesting that I think Austin said is that in the we use the descending or Chaldean method of rulership for decans, in which Venus rules this decan. But in the triplicity method, it's Saturn who rules this decan. Mm -hmm. So there's that like sort of discipline, order. Uh, he represents it as sort of the beautiful versus the ugly, sort of like the labor and the ugly sweat, blood and tears that go into making a beautiful finished product. Uh, he talks about Hephaestus, the smith. In that context. Ah, uh, yep. But, Aphrodite's husband. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So the, the, those are the parents of this Deccan. And Aphrodite's ugly husband. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah. And actually, speaking of Aphrodite and her men, we're going to be talking about cuckolding later on. There's definitely a um, theme of that in this, you know, and it, as you've mentioned, the sort of self-sufficient woman who does what she wants. Um, in the Yavana Jataka, apparently, I don't have the the full quote from 36 Faces, and I don't use the Yavana Jataka much, but he talks about a figure who has a flower in her hair from the Ahsoka tree, which I think is the Ashoka tree, which is, you know, a sacred flower. It is a it's representative of love in sort of Indian mythology. Um, and the name means sorrowless. And that's sort of like, Ashoka or Ahsoka pinged my brain because I remembered that there is a, um. Is that like the Bodhi tree? I don't think it's the same thing. No, not the um, same I think species. it's its own thing. It sort of looks like a hibiscus. <laughs> okay. Yep. It pinged the memory of this poem in my mind that I remember from it. There's a French sort of lyric song from the 19th century called Le Colibri, which means um, hummingbird. And there's a line in it that's it's a very Venusian poem. Uh, it says, the green hummingbird, the, the king of the hills. Uh, and then it goes on to say, talk about the hummingbird posing on the hibiscus flower. Ooh, la soca rouge aux odeurs divines s'ouvre porte au cœur en humide éclair. God, I haven't spoken French in a long time. It's hard. It's, uh, it's basically it where, throat. It does <laughs> um, where the red hibiscus with divine odors opens and bears at its heart a moist light. So it's super suggestive. And this was written by this poet called Charles Marie René Le Comte de Lille, who is the member, a member of a school of poets called the Parnassians, who, who were rebelling against sentimentality in French poetry. So, you know, they were all about discipline of form and letting the symbol carry the burden. So that's why this poem about sex is about a hummingbird and a flower, not about the way it makes you feel. Right. So to me, that sort of like combines those Saturn and Venusian, that restraint of holding back and letting the product speak for itself. But also it's all about sex at the same time, right. <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. We should probably talk about Picatrix. The image is a man of beautiful color dressed in leather 
And over his garment of leather is another garment of iron. Sounds awfully martial, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, not comfortable. <laughs> well, maybe because, you know... Uh, maybe that's Hephaestus. Maybe it is. That makes sense, the Smith, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also these themes of enclosure and encasement. That's very mm-hmm. much yep. something we see over and over again in Virgo cards. Uh, the signification, petitions, requests, and... Tribute and denying justice. Well, we had the ladies of justice. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. The other one from Agrippa that we have makes a little bit more sense. Well, the uh, image is a black man clothed with a skin and a man having a bush of hair holding a bag. Whatever, but (laughs) it's supposed to mean gain scraping together. scraping together of wealth and covetousness mm. so that's literally yeah, that makes sense you know i mean the bag okay so we're going to gather in the harvest we're going to hold mm-hmm. on to it we're going to assess its worth and then we're going to share it to whatever degree we wish that kind of makes some sense uh, but again these sort of layers of protection for the thing that is worthwhile uh, and also i think there's something in this i think you mentioned before about the grapes you know, there's not just in this, but in the King of Pentacles, which is, this is his final decan and sort of the relationship to Dionysus, which is a hermetic thing as well. He sometimes represented as related to Dionysus. Uh, there's historically, I think we once mentioned this before, but the Nine of Diamonds is a real interesting card. That's the Curse of Scotland. You heard about that? Yeah, yep. Yeah, people are really, really nervous about this card for some reason. And there's a lot of different reasons ascribed to that. Uh, The curse of Scotland or the scourge of Scotland. Uh, It's associated with lateness and obstacles. It's uh, sometimes known as the Pope, which is only interesting in that popes were considered the enemy in Scotland as a Presbyterian nation. But in terms of the origin of the nickname Curse of Scotland, I think it's supposed to be related to something that happened in the 18th century. There was a British official known as the Justice Clerk. I think that was his title, Lord Ormistone, Lord Ormistone, I think, something like that, who was the guy who suppressed the Jacobite uprising and killed a whole shitload of people in the process. He was known as the Curse of Scotland. Also... There's a story about, oh, there were some Scotsmen who who tried to steal the crown jewels and they only got away with nine diamonds or nine jewels, but all of Scotland was taxed for it. I think this card is sort of like meant to encapsulate all of the bad feelings between Scotland uh, and England as an oppressor nation, which is so strange. Like when you think about how we tend to view this as a pretty benign card even really great card yeah but i guess it could have to do with some of the darker deccan meanings like covetousness Mm -hmm. you know those sort of like who fighting over the resources yeah maybe the have and have nots kind of yeah thing like Like somebody's making out pretty good but at whose expense at whose expense exactly Okay, so want to look at Rider Waite? Might as well. We already kind of started. (laughs) We did start. We did start. Uh, Yeah, we've talked a lot about some of the themes in it, like the the little empress theme. If you look at her dress, those look like flowers, but they also... Look like Venus symbols. Exactly. They look like Venus symbols. 
Marcus Katz and Tolly Goodwin say that Pamela Coleman Smith modeled it after an actress who was playing Rosalind in As You Like It. Ada Rahand was her name. And that's a really interesting play because it's a love story, comedy, I guess, set in the forest of Arden, which, of course, is a really Venusian thing there. Right. Love story. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, all the protagonists are in exile, which seems like kind of a hermit, Mercury, Mm -hmm. you know, traveling far from the kingdom kind of thing. And there's gender role reversals in it and like men dressing as women, women dressing as men. And, you know, it's interesting. I've read for a lot of people who got this card, women who are very accomplished. And it's almost like this is the last moment for them before they either they get sick of their loneliness and seek somebody out or they decide that they're fine the way they are. Also, with people who are looking for love, often in all the wrong places. I often see this card come up as a reminder, get your shit together, be Be sufficient sufficient unto yourself. yourself. (laughs) Yeah. And then worry about the rest because you have to be whole in yourself first. That's something I really associate with this. Remember we talked in the eight of pentacles about the time it takes for things to grow. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the mysterious snail. In this, like, where is he? He's right yeah, right there, there. <laughs> you've got him circled on yours. Yeah. That's also a, as you like it, reference. There's a speech where she talks about the kind of man that she's looking for. A snail? <laughs> well, uh, or the kind of man she values. I can't remember exactly the context of the thing, but she says, though he comes slowly, he carries... <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) He carries his house on his head. (laughs) I can't help it. I know. (laughs) So that's the snail. He brings his destiny with him Mm. and his horns. And he's he's enclosed. But also the snail has horns, which is the sign of the cuckold, which is, again, the power of the woman to sleep with who she likes do what she wants, leads to a certain destiny for the man. That's just sort of a reference, I think, to the value of the time it takes to gestate something, the literal nine, nine months, months to grow this a life. Nine months, a nine, yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The symbol dictionary had something about snails as being lunar, which since this oh, is nice. a isode uh, being associated with the moon, I thought that was appropriate. And it also mentioned the snail as being... About uh, the female sex organs. Of course. (laughs) But that makes a lot of sense. And the male sex organs with the uh, tumescence of the horns. Oh, really? Yeah. For real? For reals. Yeah, that's what it said. (laughs) I recently read a story about um, how snails procreate, or listen to the story. Most snails, their shells curl to the right. They're right-handed, you know, and that affects how they mate because they're hermaphroditic, which is interesting. So if two snails encounter each other, they sort of like grow the appropriate or extrude or whatever it is, the appropriate (laughs) sex organs as they approach each other, because they're both right-handed, they know how to do this. But every once in a while, you get a left-handed snail who is completely out of luck. 
you know, so, so this show was about like the search for a partner for the left-handed snail and how they tried to do that and eventually found one and it procreated and stuff. But I just thought that was so funny. That is so weird. <laughs> but, and the fact that the snail is hermaphroditic made me think of this card yep. as well. Mercury. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the snail not only is this sort of like creature of time and interesting gender roles, but also a symbol of self-sufficiency. Yeah. Another thing about this card, uh, notice the symmetry of the trees mm. on either side of her. So there's a, I don't know, everything has to be just so thing about this card. I also noticed the division of the pentacles, how there are six on one side and oh, three yeah. on the other. I was going to ask what you thought of that. Six and three. We're going to see the same, interestingly enough, division in the Thoth card. And I guess in this case, the first thing I thought of was the three as being, you know, the supernals part of the tree, and then the six as being the mm-hmm. the, the lower Sephira, the planetary Sephira, yeah. and then, you know, Malkuth is left out because we're only at the nine, but... Right, right. Yeah, and the six themselves are the uh, microprosopus. So that's kind of interesting. Three would be Bina, so the mother, Venus, and all that. And then six, when you think of the solar thing, well, this isn't a card of the sun. In a way, there's in, in all three of these cards, the sun is implied. There's a hidden sun, the hidden light, mm-hmm. that hidden light, concealed light of the hermit. And I see that in this card with both that stack of the six pentacles on her right but also in the hooded falcon. Yeah. Because the, the falcon is a symbol of light and of the sun and of the sun god. And wearing a hood, it's like that light is concealed, that light is hidden. Yeah, I was going to say we should talk about the bird because the bird is solar, yes, but also, you know, you often think of the bird of Thoth, the bird of Mercury. Right. And that's what I was thinking about the hidden light as being, when you think of this being Yisod and the moon, that astrolite of the moon, where does it come from? It's reflecting the sun, right. the sun's light. It doesn't have light of its own like the planets do. So mm-hmm. the sun is implied and hidden. And we're going to see that in the other two cards too, which is really interesting. The hood in falconry is really curious because I think that's known as a trapping hood. Birds are super visually oriented. They're like all about the sense of sight. They have amazing vision. The hood is used to calm them down because as long as they don't see something, it won't rile them up and make them go after it. Uh, it won't make them afraid. So it's a, it's an instrument of control. You know, this to me is a card that's all about perfectionism and control in the classic Virgo sense. It's like being able to regulate every single little factor or trying to until it drives you nuts. But also, you know, we think of hoods as disguise. So both disguise, the secret seed and uh, and control seem to be implied in here. And I almost think of Venus in fall as like a princess in exile mm-hmm. or, you know, the Shekinah, you know, dwelling down below. In the um, the symbol dictionary, I think it was a symbol dictionary somewhere I found, a reference to hooded falcons as symbols, and it's it called them uh, the hope of the light nourished by those who live in darkness. And then it mentioned that in Renaissance paintings, sometimes you'll see a hooded falcon, and then there would be this phrase written on it, post tenebras spiro lucem, after darkness I hope for light. Oh, that's beautiful. So it, it 
again, it's that concealed light, which I think in this case is that the light in the hermit's lantern or the light under his cloak or the, the light he carries within. Yeah, she's even holding the bird in the same way he's holding the lantern up yeah. high like that. Yep. Well, so is, and the empress is holding her scepter up high. There's just some sort of visual echoes in the gesture there. Yeah. In the left hand. So is she a left-handed snail? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta wonder. I have heard, and I've never been able to quite figure out what folks are talking about. I've heard that there's a face in the greenery to the right of her robe somewhere. And her right or her uh sorry, our right. Our right of her robe. You know, that big gap in her robe to the right of that. I've heard people say that they see a face in there, but I cannot for the life of me work out what they're seeing. Can you? Uh well, I can see faces in everything, so I see like <laughs> At least two, if not three, faces in here, but there's, I don't know. <laughs> that kind of looks like a face right there. Oh, yeah. And then right. So up by the building. And then right there. And there at the bottom of her sleeve. Oh, yeah, in the, in the leaves. But, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. really think that it actually is a face. I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, human, I think it's human like... beings have the tendency to see faces in any pattern that's yeah. presented to them. So. Yeah, we're, we're, we're wired to do that. Yeah. It's a survival technique and then there's a little castle in the background and again. like yep <laughs> just like in the eight and the ten so you could think of that as again like here i am in netzach and there's malkut over yep. there which would be from netzach to malkut is the path of the moon correct yeah yeah so there's again that lunar quality as well as the nine involved in here yeah and also you know i think that you can also look at the glove as a Reference to the Yod, secret seed again. The hand. Yeah, in yeah. disguise. Yod meaning hand, yeah. Yeah. And concealed, the concealed mm-hmm. hand. Mm hmm. Hmm. Divinatorily, I like to see this card a lot because 80% of clients are women and it's a very empowering card. It really puts the emphasis on your self worth, particularly the uh, Rider Waite Smith version of it. A lot of women are able to see themselves in that. All right. Uh, shall we have a look at Thoth? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is a weird one because his description does not match with the card. I think Duquette says something about that, too. Maybe it's weird. You know, she did drafts, several drafts of cards. Maybe this was one and he just didn't update the description. (laughs) (laughs) I guess not. But it does look very Venusian. Mm -hmm. That much you can certainly say. So if you look at the way the nine discs are kind of grouped, again, we have the, the six and three the three central ones that are kind of overlapping each other, I see them as almost like one cluster, and then you have the six around it. So it's almost like For a sure. seven instead of a nine, you know, seven being Venusian, but it's also a nine because that central one yeah. is broken into three, which, I mean, it could be supernals, but with the colors, mm-hmm. it almost looks like elemental earth, water, and fire. Could be, yeah. Everything it's got that pink and green air, of Venus. You know, uh, I don't know. I really like the um, the sort of glyphs in the six surrounding ones that are glyphs of the planets yeah. turned into faces. Yeah, there, Lady Frida took the planetary glyph and turned it into a portrait of the essence of the planet. Yeah, so you have a uh, old man in the Saturn glyph. You've got a king with a sharp nose <laughs> in the Jupiter <laughs> yeah, glyph. Yeah. That's uh, Mars as Mars a soldier. With an arrow on his head. With an arrow <laughs> on his head. The uh, Venus one is 
looks a bit like the face in the Seven of Cups in Rider Waite Smith, that sort of like angel angel head type thing mm-hmm. as Venus. The and then horned Mercury. The horned head. Mercury. I don't really see his face in there. Oh, there he is. Oh, he looks quite fierce. Actually, if you look, you can just barely make yeah, out Yeah, it's his hard to features. make it out. And then uh, Yasod is like the sleeping moon face, typical sleeping moon face. Yeah, and those planets are arranged as they would be on the Tree of Life, too. That's true. So you've got the outer planets all up top, Saturn, Mars, and Jupiter, and then you've got the inner planets down bottom, Moon, yeah. Venus, and Mercury. Yeah, Bina, Chesed, Givor up top, and then Hodnet, Sod down there, with very approximate coloration, not really so much on the Mercury one. Mm. Mm. Well, you've got the purple Saturn thing going and the purple moon thing going. Well, you know, it's interesting. to. Lo- it looks like she counterchanged the colors of Venus yeah. and Mercury, maybe to emphasize their relationship, because Venus is in yellow, the Mercury color. and mm-hmm. um, It's very weird. And then and the other's in green. kind of greenish. The, yeah. So I, I, maybe that was trying to call attention to the fact that there's a relationship here. Yeah. Between Venus and Mercury. These sort of ray-like structures in the background... There's, uh, you know, there's kind of a Y shape that reminds me of like fallopian tubes and uterus kind of a thing here. Who knows what she was thinking? The dark shapes behind it, I don't have an explanation for that either. Although Crowley says something about rings or circles. Oh, there are rings and circles. Yeah, there are definitely rings and circles. I kind of see this one as like the engine room of Isode. All these um, planetary gears moving around. and Even though his description isn't quite on... His signification for it, good luck and good management, kind of makes sense because management from the Virgo side and luck from the benefic Venus side, when you combine those, you get gain. And also we talked in the Three of Pentacles about how the nine is the uh, fruit of the three, how when you, you know, three times three, when you triple the work, you get the gain. Yeah, and you see three times three in this card because there's those three groups of three. The discs are kind of clustered in. He also has, in his sort of like four nines section of Book of Thoth, he says something about the suit of discs is too dull to care. Mm -hmm. You know, it reckons up its winnings and it purrs with satisfaction at having harvested what it sowed. He talks about it as having kind of an interiority and not non-reflectiveness. Yeah, I think he said, um, I have here, no reaction against satisfaction. I have that too, yeah. (laughs) More and more stolid and impassive. Everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. That's a quote. Uh, that's from Candide. I think Voltaire's Candide, although he doesn't say so. Um, yeah. And he's, he's talked in the nines about the Yasod being the, you know, the great crystallization of energy. And where is it more crystallized than here? Well, if you think about the discs as being material world and money and nines is, you know, this penultimate expression, of course, this is going to be the payout card. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The cha-ching. Yeah. Yeah. The way that it's arranged here, the way it's almost like the tree of life in a sense with those planetary things, but yet how it has the six and then the one in the center reminds me of the menorah because the menorah is supposed to have the entire tree of life on it. It's got seven above. I think it's got Keter in the middle and then, you know, it goes outward and then down the central pillar, it has Malkut at the base as this like three pronged thing and then oh, um Yisod above it and then Tiferet are all in the middle, like the central pillar. The central candle is Keter and everything on the middle pillar is on that stand. I see. I and see then what the, you mean. the planets are the the 
three on each side of the central candle. Yes. So a, a normal menorah has seven. I just looked this up yesterday because we happen to be recording this during Hanukkah time. A normal menorah has seven branches, but the Hanukkah menorah has nine. And it's because of the miracle of the extending of the oil for eight days. And so the central candle is the one you use to light all the others. others. Color-wise, it really mostly seems to pick up from the Venus card. Yeah, there's a... Well, green is in both... the Empress. Green is in both Hermit and Empress, so I can see why there's an emphasis on green. Mm Mm-hmm. And there is sort of in the upper right, there's sort of a warmer greeny yellow kind of yellow thing yellow green yeah i don't know i i look at the hermit card and i look at him looking at that egg and it reminds me of kind of what he might be looking at looking down into a hole <laughs> yeah. nine of nine of discs i don't know it is it is like a hole behind yeah, it yeah he's sort of maybe like maybe that's the door of dalit yeah it looks kind of like a keyhole <laughs> yeah it does All right. Uh, Want to talk about Tabula Mundi? Talk about the crystallization of matter there. <laughs> yeah. All right. A honey crystallizes. Honey crystallizes. Yep. Yeah. We have all these Venusian things in here. We have the central disc with the door from the Empress's heart, the heart full of honey uh, at the end of it, down the end of the path, the open door inviting you in to enjoy um, mm-hmm. these bounties. And the heart for Tiferet. Yep. And then we've got the bees, of course, which I consider solar, lunar, and Virgo being small and diligent mm-hmm. workers. Yeah, busy bees. Um, and, and mostly females in the hive. Um, it just seems like they have a lot to do with Venus, but also with Virgo, with the sun, because they gather their honey only when the sun's out. And with the moon, they also seem like female lunar beings. And then at the top of the card, we have hands mm-hmm. for the yod, the hermit, and uh, they're nine. Mm-hmm. Nine fingers referencing the fact that this is a nine, the nine months of fruition and gestation and, and birth, um, Persephone's nine months above ground. And also it's like five like Givura on the left and four like Chesed on the right. Yeah. And... The idea of counting your blessings, because there are certainly blessings to be counted in this card, which is kind of echoed in the Rosetta card. I had an abacus as another way of tallying up your winnings Mm -hmm. and counting your blessings. And then we've got the the grains, the harvest, Virgo in thing, the the wheat fields. And the just the idea of bees and hives and honeycomb in general, you know, in this book, Ancient Masonry, it refers to honeycomb as being the spiritual nectar of earthly experience. And that sounds very much Yisod in Asaya, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like the inner and the outer wealth, the inner self-sufficiency, and then the outer abundance of stuff to enjoy. Yeah, there's something mercurial about it, too, as in Virgo. I mean, the fact that the bees in their dance, they're communicating. They've got their antenna yes, touching. Yes, they're doing the bee dance. One bee does a little dance to tell the other bees where the good stuff is. Yeah. So that they can go find it and gather the nectar and bring it back, or the pollen. Bees also are associated with the word, which makes me think of Mercury, and the soul, which makes me think of Venus in a way. Mm-hmm. So again, it's mm-hmm. that emotion and intellect balance. Yeah. And they're creatures of Demeter, so again, Venus. 
Do you think of the door as the entrance to the hive? Oh, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought of it that way, Mm -hmm. but I could see that. Mm -hmm. The heart of the hive, because the heart shape to me has always been something that reminds me of the shape of when a bee swarm clusters on a tree. It makes this, it looks like a pulsating heart. That's so cool. And I love the sort of interdependence of the wheat and the... And the bees themselves, what the product that they make is dependent, you know, on the earth to give them the raw materials to make it. And that's that process of laborious refinement is mm, very... one drop at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that whole bees as working together so that the hive can prosper is it seems like a very Virgo thing. What time of year do they go to sleep? Bees? Yeah. They don't really go to sleep. Mm-hmm. They hibernate, but they're not sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, they're clustering inside the hive and like they all gather together in this ball and try to stay warm. Basically, they generate heat so that they don't freeze. Yeah. So when is the last, do they do that? I think it, it's whenever it's under, you know, Frost. 40 degrees or something like that. They, they tend yeah. to stay inside. And then when, during the winter, if it gets above that, they'll come out and do a cleansing flight, which is basically they need to go to the bathroom once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but that might not be their like beginning of the work season. They might just go back in and yeah, they, their work season isn't until the first pollens come out in the early right. early spring, like usually like the skunk cabbage and yeah. you know the first things that <laughs> that the tree maybe there's some tree trees budding and things they can get pollen out of mm-hmm. and then later they get nectar but i think pollen is the first thing they go get but i think that like that sort of clustering in the hive thing i don't know that just seems very that sort of like strong distinction between inside and outside you know traveling inside traveling outside seems quite mercurial to me yeah yep, yeah that's true yeah and like the fact that they're secret for and there's, several there's a months. path which suggests yeah. traveling through a door. The colors oh, of the high. card, uh, the main color is citrine flecked azure. Oh, nice! And that you see in the um, the honeycombs, they're they're that citrine color, but there's there's azure in the wax part. The, in cool. The, the little hexagonal six sided cells. When we were talking about. The hidden sun in the Rider Waite card. Mm-hmm. I think that there's also a hidden sun in the Thoth card in the sense that there's seven, which makes you think of the seven planets, but the sun isn't shown. The other six yeah. are. Mm-hmm. And so this central three with the top one being pink, I think is the hidden sun part oh, of the card, the implied, yeah. the implied sun, because that pinkish color is a color, a solar color. And the sun's, if you, Look at this as a grouping of seven. The, the sun's the only, yeah, in the Thoth card yeah. is the, the the one that that implies the the sun. Yeah, though it's not actually it doesn't have its own planetary disk there. So that's like the hidden the hidden sun. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that there's a sun. There's definitely for me a solar feel in this card, even though the sun is not there. It's implied in that the bees themselves are solar creatures that gather there their nectar when the sun shines. Mm-hmm. And yet there's also this strong lunar quality in both the empress and the hermit that's secret, right? Yeah, and that yep. is implied in the nine specifically. Yep. Like on your empress card, you've got the two moons and then the hermit's got his moon, Yep. you know, uh, his connection to that through nine and 18. Can you say anything about the way honey crystallizes when and why? It's exposure to air, isn't it? I don't think it's exposure to air because no. it'll crystallize even in a completely sealed jar. Mm-hmm. 
I think it just contains a cellular crystalline structure yeah. and that just like making rock candy, if there's one little seed of a structure, it's going to start building and building and building so it on has that a tendency until it, to become matter. It, yeah, <laughs> until it becomes solid. That's interesting. I noticed that when I have honey in glass, it takes much longer to crystallize than honey in plastic. Like I'll actually oh, take it out of a well, maybe the jar. air is playing a role. Maybe so. I'm not sure how it works. But it's really interesting that it has that tendency for to go from liquid to solid and more earthen, more crystalline trying to organize itself. I was asking you that question about the heart as the heart of the hive, because in your Empress card, you have the spiral path that comes out from, from the, the heart, heart yeah. which reminds me of their flight. Yep. Uh, totally not intentional, but I noticed looking at my own card, it's also divided into six and three in that yeah. three of them have things in the discs and six of them oh, do that's not. that's so cool. Yeah. Now, what is it with this card in sixes and threes? I don't know. <laughs> There's like a three, six, nine thing going yeah. on, isn't there? Yep. Do you get it much? Yeah, once in a while, and I'm always happy to see it. And yeah, yeah, I do get it. So yeah, I'm grateful for the times that I do. Yeah, it always puts a smile on my face. I have a huge list of things here, but practically I'll, every one of them is about sewing. <laughs> well, that's very Virgo. It's so Virgo. It's like, you know, queen of the tiniest sword. But it's also the making the product you know, incredible attention to detail and making the product for me that you profit from. Yeah, I also will get it for, let's see, I'm trying to see if I have any here that aren't about sewing. There's hardly any, but, um, oh, <laughs> I got one on January last, January 4th last year. My sister was like getting after me, which she sometimes does to kind of get my financial ducks in a row. So I was kind of like New Year's resolution type thing. I was uh, kind of going into the deep structure of, of our money situation. And I unearthed an account I had started, a retirement account I had started in 1991 at a place I worked for eight years. And, you know, like we were talking about in the eight, I'd just forgotten about it. And it just had, you know, done its thing and increased to be a nice little pile of money. And uh, so there was that. And that seemed like kind of a very much related to this set of cards. And then there was one other. Have you ever been to Art in the Orchard? No. I think it's in East Hampton. There's, it's really cool. You might like it. Although from your experience at Masmoka last time, I'm not sure you would, but it's kind of cool because it's, it's art that's all hung and created in an apple orchard. So it's outdoor. That sounds art. cool. It is cool. And there's like mirrors and mobiles and cool stuff. That sounds more me. pleasant. That mass mocha, most of the art was very dystopian. And, and <laughs> I'm like, if you got to imagine something, why? Why that? Yeah. Why, you yeah. know, why are you imagining our future into that? You never but, know what you're going to get there. Yeah. You know? But Art in the Orchard just seemed like so much like this card to me. Venus, you know, in her creating aesthetic pleasure in the outdoor environment, yeah. the combination of the made and the natural Yep. Seemed really interesting to me. So Sounds very Venusian. It's very Venusian. Art and apples. Yes. <laughs> Maybe ready to summit. Could it be? All right. So um, what have we talked about? So to sum it up, we talked about the nine of pentacles or discs as the Lord of Gain or material gain. It's placement in the story of the maiden's journey as kind of a moment of peak perfection. Um, the, the, the ear of corn right before you harvest it, uh, in that sort of transition from the built world of Capricorn to the spiritual bridge worlds of Taurus to the sort of like harvest and 
final legacy cards of Virgo. In eight of discs, we refined and finished the product, and here we assess its value before passing it on and consuming it uh, in the next card. We talked about Venus in her fall throughout the sign of Virgo, though not in this decan. And we talked about the exaltation of Mercury at 15 degrees, where the uh, star of Virgo called Vindimiatrix is located. So great. The female grape gather, gatherer or the vintager. Right. We talked about Venus throughout the minor arcana uh, as the cards associated with her being the lords of gain, completion, and love, but also the cards of defeat and debauch. Talked about art collectors and stamp collectors and people <laughs> who gather and amass. <laughs> yeah. We talked about... Venus sharing rulership of the Stecan with Saturn. So uh, beauty and uh, Venus and Hephaestus as kind of parents of the Deccan, that combination of the ugly labor it takes to produce beauty. We talked about the weapons of Isode, uh, the perfume and sandals, and how they almost seem like Venus and Mercury, like we see in this card. Uh, the little empress, her relationship to the empress card. The Martha Stewart card. <laughs> <laughs> and the virtue of independence versus the vice of idleness. Right. Right. And the independent woman versus the lonely woman mm. as well. Whether you um, you strive for self-sufficiency or long to share it with someone. We talked about the, the lady of the manor in the enclosed garden. Oh, yeah. And the... Uh, the the in, the themes of enclosure and encasement. I didn't even think of that with the sewing. I'm always making cases, cases, for text, yeah. But that's what it's about. When, and yeah. the, the snail, and the snail, <laughs> the, the left and right handed snails. <laughs> yes, and the the time it takes to gestate something, as well as the horns of the snail and the concept of cuckoldry. We talked about the hooded falcon as the hidden light and the uh, hope of the light for those who live in darkness. We talked about the Archangel Gabriel, the angel of annunciation to the mother and virgin, and the archdemon Lilith, she who steals children, the screech owl, another bird woman. Yasod is the foundation of literal reality. And the treasure house of images. We talked about the curse or scourge of Scotland <laughs> and the uh, suppression of the Jacobite uprising. We talked about the hummingbird and the hibiscus, the uh, Venusian image of uh, sucking the nectar out of the flower. We talked about the bees as creatures of Demeter and of Virgo being small and diligent and dancing their dance so the hive may prosper and, and find material gain. Ah, uh, yes. And discipline in poetry rather than sentiment or romanticism. The sixth day of the creation of man. And the nine months of the creation of yes, man. and the nine months as And well, not yeah. the nine months of Persephone's above ground glorious time. The uh, love story of As You Like It and Rosalind who switches genders like the, like the hermaphroditic snails. <laughs> the yod as the hands and counting your blessings. Uh, the seven planets with their glyphs inscribed. In the engine room of Isode, <laughs> where things in the astral are formed and planned. 
And the hermits gaze down into the descent of matter or upward, who knows which. Did we talk about the hood of the falcon? Yeah, we talked about the hood as... Disguise and control. Yeah, and hiding the solar light of the, the sun falcon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or the bird of Mercury. Oh, and the bees is communicating through their dance. Another mercurial reference. All right. I think, I think we got it. I think that's what we did. <laughs> All right. So, uh, we hope that you have gained a little bit of knowledge to add to your treasure house in listening to this episode with us. And we will see you next time with our final Deccan of the Minor Arcana, the very last one. Oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> we still have four court cards left. Yeah, well, I know, but it's the last one. I know, minor, it's the last I love of the, the minors, decanic minors. The decanic yep. minors, yeah. Yep. We'll be back with the Lord of Wealth, the Ten of Pentacles or Discs, in the next episode. See you then. And that's our show for today. You can find us, as always, at our online home, www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse but there are also a number of other places you can find me and mel on the internet all of mel's books and decks can be found at www.tarotcart.com so that's your first stop if you want to find anything related to the rosetta tarot or the tabula mundi tarot that's also where you'll find the adorable new pocket-sized decks as well as signed and matted prints of her artwork as for me my book Tarot Correspondences, Ancient Secrets for Everyday Readers. It's coming out from Llewellyn and is available for pre-order online at Amazon Book Depository and more. You can learn more about that at my website, www.tsusanchang.com. I also have a shop on Etsy where I sell the one and only trademarked Arcana case in lavish silks, brocades, and esoteric prints, as well as my Zodiac perfumes. Perfumes for the next month's sun signs are always on sale at the year's lowest price. All of that is at www.etsy.com slash tarotista. And if you'd like your very own Fortune's Wheelhouse t-shirt or tote bag or mug, we have those too. You can find them at our Redbubble shop. The address for that is redbubble.com slash people slash wheelhouse93 slash shop. Go on, get yourself something. You know you deserve it. Happy shopping to all you heroes of the astral plane. We so appreciate your support. Mm-hmm.